Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Greetings and welcome. Joshua here. Thank you so much for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Simon Critchley, the author of the new book, Bald, 35 Philosophical Shortcuts. Simon is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research. His work engages in many areas from continental philosophy, ethics, philosophy and literature, and psychoanalysis, among others. In this conversation, Simon and I discuss how to find happiness, how to think about hope, the cycle of revenge, navigating fear, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wise and gracious Simon Critchley. Hey, Simon, thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much, Joshua. I've enjoyed the new book and I'm excited to discuss it with you. To begin the conversation, I was hoping we could discuss maybe the meaning behind the title. The book is called Bald, 35 Philosophical Shortcuts. How would you define a philosophical shortcut? (laughs) It's short. (laughs) (laughs) And the bald idea is really, um, I thought it was just funny in a kind of poking fun at identity claim and uh, the fact that people feel they can say all sorts of Finishes things about people that are bald. So it's, it's meant jokingly at one level, and it's a way, you know, it's a kind of, it's a kind of frame. It has a, a meaning in the sense of which, sense in which you know, the, the kind of writing that I've been trying to do in the New York Times over the years is, is bald in the sense in which it's all of its academic jargon, wigs and comb overs and, uh, Toupees are removed or shaved off, and I'm trying to talk simply and clearly to a, and you know, a, the kind of audience you'd find in a newspaper like the New York Times. So that's been just bald in that way, sticking your head out of the window and uh, seeing what what drops on top of it. It's bald in the sense in which there's a good joke, and then we've got the whole kind of conceit of speaking boldly. That was the rough idea. I know from previous interviews, you're you're a fan of, of humor. Are you uh, a fan of the show Curb Your Enthusiasm? Yeah, love Larry David, yeah. For some reason, I, I thought that you would. If, if he was writing a book, I I kept thinking of that, that he might might use that same same title. Right, yeah. Yeah, because there's a whole episode about, about baldness and what you can say about to bald people, bald men, or bald anybody, and get away with it. It's not right. And so... I'm trying to put it right. I think Larry David is extraordinary. It's deeply philosophical as well in ways that we could uh, explore, if you like. But yeah, he's not really on my mind in book in any kind of obvious way. But, you know, I love Larry David's stuff. And I'm from England originally. And we there's a certain kind of humor which is associated with where I'm from. And there's a and there are all these weird alliances with uh, with uh, American Jewish humor, which are which are kind of odd, often the same jokes. So, yeah, I, I, love, I love Larry David. 
Yeah, likewise. Great show. So how would you describe what you do in the world, Simon? I usually say, if people say I'm a philosopher, I usually say, no, I teach philosophy. And I'm happy with that. I think that philosophy needs to be taught and I teach it. So that's that sounds honest enough rather than being, you know, doing something dishonest like teaching people to write, which I think is very, very hard to do. So I kind of wound up in philosophy by a series of happy accidents and by virtue of a whole series of freakish things in retrospect. And then um, I could have ended up elsewhere or probably most likely would have ended up not in academia. I mean, Lord knows what I would have been doing, but happily enough at a certain point, I was uh, I got paid to think, which is about as good as it gets. Not paid enough, but there you go. Any thoughts of what maybe initially sparked that interest or that curiosity for philosophy or wisdom? Any particular moments that come to mind? Anxiety. For me, the bomb dropped when I was about 22. I went to university late. I was, I had a, uh, a misspent youth. I was born in 1960, so I was in the punk scene and in bands doing you know the sex drugs and rock and roll without the sex it was just rock and roll a lot of music and then I was going to be a, a poet and the poetry definitely didn't work out although I wrote poetry until I was 25 and then I stopped I went back when I was 20 to do exams I left school at 16 and then went back when I was 20 to do exams that I should have done when I was 15 or 16 so kind of remedial remedial work at what in American terms would be a community college. And that's when I really began to slowly think, well, there's you know, that maybe there's, there's something going on here. And then I began to read some, some of the usual bits of philosophy, bits as a Bertrand Russell, A.J. Ayer, and then Sartre, Nietzsche, Camus, people like that. And then went to university to do literature when I was 22 at one of the, you know, one of the consistently ranked lowest universities in the UK at the time. I think it was Essex where I went was ranked 41 out of 42 universities at that point. So I managed to get in with very bad qualifications. And then when I was there, I discovered a, a world. I discovered this scene of just interesting people who were teaching there in a very permissive, bohemian atmosphere and it was great what then happened was i began. i had a couple of what you would have called in the old days nervous breakdowns in my early 20s linked to all sorts of things really and the anxiety really was the tension that was holding whatever myself was together and i remember reading when i was about 22 a sentence of of heidegger from heidegger's what is metaphysics where he says Anxiety reveals the nothing. Anxiety reveals the nothing. And I thought, I know exactly what, what you mean. And that was kind of the way in through anxiety and as a way of managing that. And, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily give the same answer now, but when I was starting out, well, I thought, well, maybe I can help other people with that basic anxiety of being alive as well. And maybe teaching philosophy is something I could would be a good thing to do. 
some part of me still thinks that, but the anxiety has got has got better over the years. Well, up to a point. Well, thanks for some background there. I'm excited to get into some of these shortcuts. And the very first first one, happy like God, you, you begin with this perennial question, what is happiness? You're right here referencing Aristotle, how the goal of the philosophical life could be defined as the solitary life of contemplation. That has always seemed very counterintuitive to me, and I, I would love to hear you kind of expound a, a bit on that. The goal of philosophy in ancient Greek philosophy, it's, it's not action, it's not change, it's not justice or anything like that. I mean, these are, these are things that a philosopher might deal with along the way, but the goal of philosophy is the contemplative life, and the contemplative life is the life of the mind, and at its very best, in the way Aristotle puts it, but other people say very similar things, it's to be almost godlike. Yeah, there's a kind of a godlike capacity that the activity of thinking, the solitary activity of contemplation, in a sense, is something like divine life, something like the life of the gods. This is obviously in a pre-Christian context. And you can find this in Aristotle, the end of the Nicomachean Ethics. You can find it in the letters of Epicurus. You can find it in scattered in Plato's dialogues. So, and it's something which has been, you know, largely kind of forgotten. You know, people think that the goal of philosophy is, I don't know. I don't know what they think it is, but the ancient view is that, yes, it's the solitary life of contemplation. And that view has been subjected to a lot of criticism over the years. In this piece, which is actually the almost the oldest piece in the book, back then, which is about 11 years ago, I was uh, working on Rousseau, on Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was someone who was consumed by anxiety and narcissism and demons, wrote three autobiographies, which is, you know, going a little far. Barack Obama will be. Rousseau when it comes to the number of autobiographies written. But the last one he writes is called Reveries of a Solitary Worker. Reveries of a Solitary Walker, not Worker. That's funny. He describes this experience. Rousseau is really difficult, a difficult, brilliant man, but someone that no one really liked to be around. And uh, a kind of miserable and constantly at war with himself and others. And he talks about this experience of floating in a little boat on the Lake of Bienne in, uh, near to his native Geneva in, in Switzerland. There's something that not only Rousseau has done, which is botany. I mean, don't, people don't think of philosophers as, as botanists, but there is a botanical tradition in, in philosophy, a kind of tradition of, of gardening and of cultivating plants. Most of the ancient Schools like Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum had a garden and they were built around a garden. So botanical classification is a kind of interesting uh, sideshow to, to philosophy. And um, Rousseau got interested in botany in his later years. And then on the way out to this little island, on the way back, he would just let the boat drift in the lake he says there was a, a feeling of existence at that point, uh, a feeling of existence, and we can call ourselves happy at that point, happy like God, a kind of divine happiness. 
which lasts for as long as it lasts, and then it fades and we're sucked back into the world. I got very interested in that that idea of happiness as a kind of divine feeling of existence, which is a way of you know occupying the present for as long as that's possible. And also the association of reverie with with water was something that interests me a lot. The next piece, which is called Beyond the Sea, just catalogues different examples of reverie in relation to water, um, notably Melville's Moby Dick, which begins with a kind of amazing shot of lower Manhattan from a, a kind of impossible camera position up in the harbour looking at the city, and and people come down to the the edge of the island of the Manhassos, as Melville says, and they look at the water. Why do we look at water and what happens when we look at water and what do we feel when we look at water? That's one way of being happy. What would you say are some common obstacles to overcome here? Well, phones, day-to-day activity, in many ways, other people. <laughs> you know, Rousseau describes an experience of happiness in relationship to when he's on his own. I think you can have an experience of this kind of happiness. I mean, you know, there's a different kind of happiness of being in a group, you know, being, you know, if you like, drunk at a party or at a concert, and then you're in a, that, that idea of a collective ecstasy. That's great, but that's something else. I think the kind of happiness that Rousseau's describing is a kind of sober feeling of existence, a kind of clarity. And the, that you can definitely have that with a you know with a with a lover with someone that you're very close to, someone you, where you don't need to to speak. So in a sense, everything gets in the way of it: language, communication, phones, stuff, the sound of fire trucks that I can hear out of my window here. So in a sense, the I think something something particularly intense happens in relationship to water gazing in relationship to the sea. And I guess in my fantasy, I couldn't, this is, this is something I could prove, but, you know, my own private Idaho of a philosophical fantasy, there is something about the, you know, the origins of life, which is bound up with the, with reverie in relationship to water that we, you know, or some creatures that are related to us crawled out of this water and then adapted to the environment and evolved into into us and you know the other cousins we have in the the animal world there is something primal there and also terrifying i think there's also uh, a terror linked to uh, gazing at water uh, fear not 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 such a fear of drowning but just a fear of the deep and what that can hold it definitely brings up a quote that you list of rousseau no need to remember the past or reach into the future without gazing at, at water. When you think of contemplation, I think many of us in contemplation, it can go to the past or go to the future. Any thoughts on finding that no need to remember the past or reach into the future? It's a persistent theme in a whole number of different thinkers that in a sense well, I mean, Wittgenstein puts it most most acutely in the in the Tractatus, where he says the eternal life is given to those who live in the present. 
So in a sense, to be able to live in the present is to experience something like eternity, something like timelessness. And at that point, the past and the future are of no concern to us. To what extent is that possible? Well, with difficulty. I mean, the past obviously haunts us with its ghosts, with its you know historical ghosts, its societal ghosts and uh, personal ghosts. And the future can terrify us, paralyze us, disable us from thinking. So it's very difficult to to kind of be in that in that now, uh, in that present, and to and to stay there and feel it as okay. I think it's very important, and I'd also link it into what what I'm doing right now in relation to my work is thinking about the relationship between time and timelessness in relationship to aesthetic and mystical experience. That's something which very much preoccupies me. How can we, can we think about an idea of being pulled out of time? It's up to you know listeners to decide about what, when does that happen. To some people, that could be you know riding a bicycle, or it could be you know what driving a car or driving a motorbike or whatever, or it could be being you know with someone that you love or whatever, or it could be looking at looking at water. But for me, it, it happens in particular in relation to music as well. And uh, I did this thing last week, which I was very very happy to do with with Brian Eno, who's one of my gods, whose music has meant so much to me over most of my life and we talked about music and now and the future and things like that but when i think about what's happening in you know a time-based medium like music and music is time-based it passes in time there is the possibility of a kind of being held in the present the one's attention being being held by a piece of music and at that point you are you're transported. You are kind of ecstatically held for as long as the music holds you. That's, I think, one of the things that makes life worth living. I think probably I'm only really optimistic when it comes to music. I think music does extraordinary things, and it does it in ways that we simply do not understand. It's not brain function. It's not reducible to the sense organs. It just has, it has the effect that it has. And it's abstract as well, which is also amazing. We're not looking at things. It's not figurative. It's not linguistic. It's music. So that's something that very much concerns me. Yeah. To follow the thread of of optimism, one of the shortcuts is abandon nearly all hope. Yeah. (laughs) You're right. Thinking without hope might sound rather bleak. Yeah. I think we're prisoners of hope. I think hope is a... Usually a terrible thing, and it's something that is traded upon politically. This, again, is a very early piece in the book. I was thinking about it particularly in relationship to Barack Obama, who's come up twice now. I barely think about him, but there we are. But the audacity of hope and the way in which hope has been mobilized politically, I think, in ways which are pernicious. And the line that I take in this piece is from Nietzsche. There's a line of of Nietzsche where he says, hope is the evil of evils because it prolongs man's torment. Hope is the evil of evils because it prolongs man's torment. By clinging to hope, we make suffering worse. And 
in a sense, we cannot but hope, right? We're kind of prisoners of hope in the sense in which we hope that we will know people who are in a, a bad situation, whatever it might be, lost their job or they're, they're very ill, and we hope that things are going to be better for them. And we know that they're probably not. So it's not that hope can be avoided, but the idea that hope should be marketed politically or marketed educationally, you know, that I'm in the business of, of you know, trading on the hope of young people who often want to be academics. And I think that's also pernicious because there aren't any jobs or there are very few jobs or the jobs that there are really terrible jobs. So what are we doing by trading on hope? So I think that hope is something we need to think about and step back from. It's, you know, it really, it, the way in which it's used in in everyday discourse really comes out of, of Christianity and in particular out of the letters of St. Paul. And the idea of blind hope could be a very, very destructive thing. And I tell a story in that piece about, about Thucydides, the great Greek historian and how we ought to learn to operate politically without hope because hope keeps us prisoners of our present state. Yeah, so this is hope is kind of we're, we're doomed to it. I don't think it's something we should cultivate. Courage is probably a more important virtue than hope. So why not ask people to be courageous rather than uh, asking them to trust blindly in, in hopes which are never going to be fulfilled? How do you connect hope with some of the everyday, like, for example, New Year's resolution type of goals of weight loss or promotions, kind of clinging to hope. Any connection there? Well, I think you have to, you know, kind of give those up as well, right? They, I mean, weight loss maybe <laughs> eat less and exercise more, and for the most part, and uh, New Year's resolutions are, you know, very hard to to keep. It's like in a friendship or relationship when you can make all sorts of promises and then you betray those promises. Hope can be like that. So I think that the the solution to a problem is the disappearance of a problem in the sense in which to deceive people with hopes, to make promises and to induce hopes in people that can't be met is pernicious. And the only response one can can make the only thing which is better is to is to do things practically through the through the doing through the through the acting rather than the hopeful promising. The issue is not what you resolve to do for the rest of the year on New Year's Eve, but you know what you actually do on New Year's Eve and how you how you are with people and um, and you know and and my my views there are very simple. It's be nice, kindness, which is you know a virtue which is in very, very short supply in the world. And it's a very easy thing to to achieve, to be kind and not be scared, as Dave Chappelle would say. Those are two. If people could do that, if they could be kind to each other, merciful to each other, forgiving, and they could uh, not be scared in relation to what they say, then we'd be in a very different place than we are now, where people are, terrified of speaking because of what the implications are and of saying the wrong thing. And people are mean to each other. Anonymity is allowed, you know, a kind of pandemic of meanness. And it's not how we 
are. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm an, an optimist about human nature, but I'm not a pessimist about human nature. I think human beings are, for the most part, decent and, for the most part, act well with those around them, with those those close to them. So proximity is a kind of a gift. It allows you to kind of cultivate an attention to, to others. So, yeah, be kind and don't be scared. If that were possible, gosh, we'd be in a very different place. How would you say the response to that question you just posed around being an optimist or a, a pessimist? I think you said people are generally decent. How would you say the response to some of those questions might shape our everyday behaviors like kindness? I think a pessimism about history is a precondition for something like kindness. And I think an optimism about history leads to barbarism. So I guess my view is an, is an odd view in the sense in which I'm very much against ideas of progress and the idea of history as a kind of a line or an arrow which goes from the past towards the future and then uh, and history has two sides, a good side and a bad side, and we have to get on the good side and ride the train into the future. I think this is a disastrous view of human affairs because we forget and we keep on forgetting. And the cost of that forgetting is is evident in terms of social and political behavior. Obviously, you know, in this in this country, the the constant forgetting of history and the replacement of that with this, you know, a, a kind of progressive, upbeat, future orientated. Uh, idea of politics, which just you know leads to disaster after disaster. So the first the first step is to remember as carefully as possible the cultivation of historical sensibility is is it's absolutely central to everything that I believe that we are as good as the histories that we constantly remind ourselves of. If we look into to history, which is a history of disaster of catastrophe. On the American continent, largely a history of extermination, displacement, expropriation, and various forms of imprisonment, slavery, and all the rest. If you look at that in the fully in the face and acknowledge it, then I think perhaps you can move forward more, more decently, more carefully, and with a greater sense of kindness and also a sense of human limitation. Another great deception that we have is is an idea of unlimitedness that you know like the adidas slogan or is it nike you know impossible is nothing you know you can be whatever you can achieve your dreams no you can't that isn't the point and that's not even the right thing to do it's you know we are we are limited creatures we're fragile creatures we're creatures that a little virus can can wipe out in huge numbers and we have to acknowledge that, acknowledge our limitation, and move forward, move forward quietly, and in a way that is based in in empathy and compassion for each other. That's that's kind of my view. That's a, a great transition to probably my my favorite shortcut in the book, which was that final one: our, our fear, our trembling, our strength. It seems to kind of see it optimistically of, of realizing our mortality and kind of that same thing in terms of history, seeing reality as, as close to it as we can, can be a good thing and, and help shape us in the future. Could you kind of speak to that, that final shortcut a bit? 
the last piece in the book was written, or was published on April the 10th last year, 2020. And that was, you know, the worst period in New York. And I think, I think that week, the day after this came out, was when around the corner from where I live and where I'm speaking from now in Cobble Hill in Brooklyn, I think there were 72 people. It was announced on the radio that 72 people had died in Cobble Hill Nursing Home in the last seven days. And it's three blocks from here. And I walk past it all the time. And I see the people being taken out. You know, it, it's in the neighborhood. And that really hit home because it was so close. And so I tried to think about what the pandemic has shows us, what its lesson might be. And uh, again, I think it's a lesson in in limitation. And in the piece, I talk about a thinker who I've been inspired by since I was a first-year undergraduate, who is Pascal, 17th century French Christian, but very much someone who was completely immersed in the, in the, the new scientific culture and geometry and a fascinating, fascinating figure. And, you know, Pascal writes that the the source of all of humanity's problems is the inability to sit quietly alone in a room, right? The source of all of our problems is inability to sit quietly alone in a room. And we are defined by inconstancy, boredom, and anxiety. And that human beings are, he says, the weakest creatures, fragile, vulnerable creatures of the universe can crush us, a virus can crush us. We can be wiped away. We're like reeds. We can just be wiped away. But he says, we're reeds. We're like bits of straw, but we're thinking reeds. And he says, let us strive to think well. Let us strive to think well. That's the basic principle of all morality. So that can be my view, that in a sense that the it's the emphasis upon upon weakness, on, on our wretchedness that is our that is our strength, that is our that is our triumph. And so I think we have to be constantly suspicious of easy narratives of redemption, easy narratives of salvation and, and change, and focus on our fragility, our weakness, our vulnerability, and find our strength in that. And, you know, I think this point is my kind of possible delusion that the pandemic, I mean, who knows, maybe the whole thing will just be forgotten. And that's the, again, that's the terror. Going back to what I was saying earlier on, about remembering is, you know, I was brought up in a culture like most people, certainly in Europe, based on remembering the First World War. And the First World War was marked every every November, Armistice Day. And we remember the war, but we forgot the Spanish flu, which happened at the same time as the end of the, the First World War and had catastrophic effects. So we remembered the war and we forgot the Spanish flu, which cost more lives in the First World War. So the capacity for human beings to forget is enormous. So I worry about the pandemic being forgotten. If it's remembered, as I hope it is, and if people think think hard and about what it what it was like last year, what it's still like in some parts of the world, then I think it makes certain moves, it makes certain arguments more difficult. I think it makes the kind of strongman politics that's dominated some parts of the world, here, uh, Brazil, to a lesser extent, Britain, uh, to a greater extent, India, 
it's made that look pretty ridiculous. And maybe that's uh, weakened that view of things. And it's weakened the, you know, the idea that, you know, we make our own reality and to hell with you kind of approach. I hope that the pandemic has, has made us a little bit more humble, more modest. I fear that it hasn't, but I hope that it has. And I think it's also reminded us of the kind of activity that science is, which is, is a very piecemeal, humble, incremental, modest activity of building things slowly, building hypotheses, testing them against evidence, and then, you know, double blind testing the, you know, what technology they're able to produce in terms of, say, the vaccines that we now have the good fortune to take. And the modesty of that is really important to, to remember. I hope that the pandemic has made certain, certain myths harder to believe than they were a year ago, a year and a half ago. Do you see many of these shortcuts as a paradox of life, like this one we've been discussing, our, our fragility is our strength in another, in the freedom of faith, you write, doubt is not the enemy of faith, on the contrary, certainty is. Yeah, I do see that. Yeah, I, I do explore antitheses like that. And I think it's, um, faith is not certainty. Faith is faith. And if faith is not shaped and informed by doubt, then it's not faith. It's, it's a dogmatism. And I think people often get really confused about that. The, the kind of faith that, and the, 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 that, that text on the freedom of faith is, is based on Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, which, where there's, there's, there's this extraordinary dialogue between the Grand Inquisitor, who is the representative of the church on earth, and this figure, Jesus, who doesn't say very much. And, the Grand Inquisitor, who is, you know, representative of the church, says, ends up saying, well, basically we're in league with the devil and we, there has to be mystery and we need mystery in order to control people and give them easy prospects of happiness. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian or a, a non-Christian. I'm just very interested in all sorts of things. But if you look at the Gospels, and I recently um, listened to the whole New Testament read by Johnny Cash on a fantastic platform called Hoopla, which you can get through a public library subscription. Costs nothing. Amazing. And Jesus is a very strange character in all sorts of ways, basically has one, one issue, which is belief, right? Belief, right? Have, have faith. And you can be the worst person in the world. You can be the biggest sinner. You can be a prostitute. You can be a moneylender. You can be a, whatever the worst thing would be. And if you repent, you're forgiven, and you just have to believe. But that belief is not blind faith. It's a belief that can sustain you, and it has to be informed by, by doubt and by questions. So there's a confusion of, of the experience of faith with something like a, a fundamentalism in, in religion, which I think is really unfortunate because religion is, is just much more interesting than that. The great religious thinkers have been immersed in the last few months in, in Thomas Merton, who is um, wonderful. Uh, the great religious thinkers are consumed by doubt. 
self-questioning and a sense of their own inadequacy to to bring about to achieve what it is that they they want to sustain with their lives and if you're not doing that you're not really thinking religiously at all so certainty is is, is the problem there's another um essay in the in the collection which there's actually two which i'm very fond of one is that there is no theory of everything which is about a teacher of mine who actually came from new york and a very interesting figure and the, the second is a, a piece called the dangers of certainty a lesson from auschwitz and it's about this this man called jacob bronowski and jacob bronowski was one of the most important figures in theoretical physics in the early decades of the 20th century and you know, a distinguished theoretical physicist and interested in literature and also wrote books and whatever and he presented this extraordinary 12 part bbc series called the ascent of man a bit sexist i know in the early 70s and it's a story of the history of science really a story about the history of science mainly from the 17th century onwards and it's absolutely stunning and he ends it and this was unusual at the time and it's uncharacteristic of him Bronowski was originally a Polish Jew, lived in, in England and in the United States. He visits Auschwitz and he's talking about certainty. He says, if you want certainty, this is where you end up, right? You end up in a crematorium. You end up with extermination. And uh, he, he quotes this line from Cromwell, I think it's Cromwell where Cromwell says to somebody in Parliament during the, in the 17th century, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ to acknowledge that you might be mistaken. I beseech you to acknowledge you might be mistaken. And if you don't allow for, for doubt, for questioning, then that those forms of certainty can lead to those outcomes. And if there is a kind of weird, terrible lining to the pandemic is the danger of certainty conspiracy theory the flowering of different kinds of conspiracy theories which will feed off ideas of certainty or the idea of a political figure who has to at all times be absolutely certain of um, their views otherwise it's going to be a kind of a gotcha moment it just seems to me ridiculous i mean you know people that governors should be people who change their minds weakness in changing your mind because you, know, you don't know everything so you can you, on the basis of new kinds of evidence new kinds of facts well you change your opinion that's fine that's not flip-flopping that's that's education that's so so helpful and this has been great our our time has flown by here simon i just have a couple quick kind of closing questions before we wrap up of these 35 philosophical shortcuts which one do you find most useful in your everyday life? What is a philosopher is pretty useful. And what is a philosopher basically argues that you know, philosophy begins with somebody falling into a ditch and making a fool of themselves because they were too focused on looking at the stars. So that idea that philosophers are buffoons are kind of absent-minded idiots, and we haven't sorted any of the fundamental questions out. And that's because those questions are questions which human beings will always ask, and that's a, an important thing to be reminded of. Everything in relation to education and everything else can be so driven by 
you know, what's the use value of this? What is the outcome? And philosophy is in that regard useless. I love it. If you could give the listeners a super small step or, or tiny practice to gain a bit of wisdom, what would that be? Stop what you're doing and walk to an open space or go to an open space or drive and either look at some water or feel the wind on your skin. This morning I was looking at my back garden and looking at these insects floating around the bushes. And, and that, I think that, that sense of that possibility of a tranquility, a stillness in relationship to, to nature is a source of wisdom. You can't quantify it, but it's absolutely important. And if, without it, we end up in this sort of scurrying back and forth movement, which is so destructive. That is so good. I encourage everyone to pick up the book, Bald 35 Philosophical Shortcuts. This has been a great conversation. Where would you point people interested in learning more about you? I've got a website, but it's not very interesting. Yeah, there's lots of videos and things. If people just Google my name, there's all sorts of odds and ends out there. And then they can email me if they want to if they want to follow up. That would be absolutely fine. Happy for you to give them people my email address and I always I always reply. We'll link all of that in the show notes. Simon Critchley, thank you for your time today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life. Right to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, be wise and be well.